Number 3. Psalms. First Quarter, 2024. John Pauline. Welcome, Pinole family, to lesson number three in our study of the book of Psalms, The Lord Reigns. Dr. John Pauline will lead through the Bible study, and Neil will offer the opening prayer. Our dear kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for being the wonderful God that you are. We thank you for allowing your son to come to teach us about you, and we thank you for the abilities that you have provided for us to learn about you. Your words, your nature, all of these things. Be with us, dear Lord. Help us to remember you and to show your love, care, and kindness to all that we meet. Help us remember that we are your ambassadors and that you have a gospel message for us to give to the world and help us to be willing to pass on the knowledge that we have. These things we ask in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. So we are in the third of a series on the Psalms, and the title is The Lord Reigns, which I understand to be focused on the Psalms. I guess some would call them the royal Psalms, talking about the kingdom of God, the kingship of God, God's government, etc. And the theme text that is given is Psalm 93.1, which I'll read as we get started. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure. What this text tells us is that the value of God's reign, the value of God's government, is it provides security, stability to our lives. So the reign of God is seen in this text as the basis for a secure, a stable, and reliable form of society. So as we note in the first section of our handout, a major theme of the Psalms is the idea that God is the sole and ultimate ruler of the universe. If you believe God is everything that we see in Jesus, this belief provides great security and confidence in the future. It is no wonder that the psalmist served God with undivided devotion. Having said that, what picture of God would leave a person very insecure? The idea that God is in control, etc. Some people, that's just wonderful. For other people, it's scary. What's the difference there? Go ahead, Lou. Well, it's one that would be based upon my behavior. You know, that would be pretty scary as opposed to being based upon his love and his grace, his healing, and all of that that I need so terribly day by day. All right. Thank you. Anyone else? Larry makes the comment that God who is arbitrary, unforgiving, and severe might be a God that you wouldn't feel secure if you're under his control. Yeah. All right, Nancy. Yeah, I agree with Larry. And you can be afraid of God, even though you love him. Maybe even from your parenting, if you have a covert adult in your life as you're growing up and you're trying to please them, but they'll bite you. And that can color your picture of God, that yes, he's loving, but be careful. And to realize it's sin that is destructive and that we have to be afraid of. And it's not God. He's doing everything he can. It puts a whole different color on his parenting. And I think it takes a lifetime to unlearn those fears and well, at least it's a journey. And the more we get to know him, 
the less afraid we can naturally become, but also know what we do need to fear and get it straight. In the second part of our handout, it says there are six major views of God in the world. And it might be useful for us to take a look at them. And this comes from the field of philosophy, where first of all, the first option with God is naturalism. And that is basically that there is no God, that nature, the universe is all that there is. There's no overarching creator or anything. And therefore, there's no evil either. What is, is what is. And you just accept it. That's sort of where things are at. So naturalism then is the idea that there is no God, and therefore there's no morality, no evil, etc. Second idea of God is pantheism. And this God is real, but God is not personal. God is simply the entire universe. In other words, the universe and God are not distinguished from each other. God is the entire universe. But again, this is not a personal God, but it's more like a force. And you may be familiar with that from a certain movie series, the idea of God as the power that holds the universe together and can sometimes be manipulated by special people for their own ends. So pantheism is the idea that God is the universe and the universe is God, but that God is not a person. The third idea of God is deism. And in deism, there is a God. God is a person. God is distinct from the universe, but uh, God is disengaged from the universe. Like a watchmaker, God has created the watch, sets it going, and then hands it over to somebody else and says, good luck with that. And so in the deistic view of God, God has intentionally created us to create our own reality. And he doesn't interfere with our choices and the consequences of those choices. This was a view very common among some of the American founders people like Jefferson, for example, and the idea that God has given us the responsibility to create that perfect world that we all long for. So deism, this is a personal God, but he's not engaged in my life on a day-to-day -day basis. The fourth is deterministic theism. Deterministic theism. And that's the idea that, yes, there is a God, and yes, that God is a person, but it is a God who is so deeply engaged in the universe that basically nothing happens without God's direct involvement. So this is sort of the opposite of deism. Deterministic theism is a God who is so engaged with the universe that really nothing happens without God being part of it. So it's a God who is sort of micromanages everything a God who is uh, controlling. And the Christian version of that is sometimes called Calvinism, where if you fall down the stairs, the best reaction is to say, I'm glad that's over with. You know, it was all part of the plan. And Seventh-day Adventists, of course, are not Calvinists, are not in the field of that deterministic sort of theism. A fifth type is appeasement theism. And I think Daniel mentioned that in our previous session. And that's the idea that there is a God, and that God is a person, but that God is angry with us or disappointed in us or is hostile to us. 
And so the only appropriate response is appeasement. Try to find some way to calm this God down so he doesn't hurt us. You know? And this would be fairly typical of some of the pagan religions where you have the worship of trees and forest spirits and all kinds of things. The idea that nature and God is somewhat closely related, but that this God is not necessarily friendly. And then the sixth form of theism is benevolent theism. And benevolent theism is that God is a person. God is real. God is very, very powerful. But God is also very, very good. And this is the consensus of the Christian church. Many have tweaked it in various ways, as I mentioned, Calvinism to a more deterministic place. But benevolent theism basically asserts two things. God is great, powerful, but God is also good and kind and forgiving. So that's basically the consensus of the Christian church. The view that you take to a large degree determines how you view God's power. And therefore, whether or not your view of God results in security or in fear. And certainly appeasement theism, one would tend to relate to God on the basis of fear. All right, so with that background in mind, anyone have a comment on that? Something you wanna add, a category I may have overlooked? give you an opportunity to respond to that large concept, if you would like to. Iris has a comment. I just want to say there's a large body of literature now out in the area of spirituality and health, and they have looked at how the picture of God impacts. And many of the religious variables have only a health benefit when there is a positive picture of God. So God as benevolent versus arbitrary or punishing or retributing is crucially important for in any study that shows a positive correlation between the religious variables and health. Yes, I think the view one has of God has powerful implications for mental health in particular, but also to some degree physical health. All right, let's go to number three in our outline, and it says to read Psalm 8, and why don't we do that at this point? O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have founded a bulwark because of your foes, to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers— the moon and the stars that you have established? What are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All right, so what picture of God do you get from this song? Anyone have a reaction to it? What does it emphasize about God? Seems to me the overwhelming thing here is the power of God. 
is a psalm about the power of God. He's majestic. His splendor is seen. The universe is so vast, etc., that we're almost insignificant by comparison. God runs everything. So uh, a strong sense of God's power, I think, in this psalm. I got a slightly different slant. Yes, it talks about God's infinite power, but it also impressed me that he was willing to share it with his created beings and giving them considerable responsibility and taking care of what he had created. Okay. And you would see that in the references to Genesis 1, I assume, where it speaks of dominion over the sheep and the oxen, the birds of the air, fish of the sea, etc. Right. Yeah. So we have a powerful God, but one who is not selfish, one who's willing to share. Livius. Psalms 8 reminds me of Romans 120, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Verse 9, O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So I think it's interesting how it's challenging for me to try to look and find God's character in what's written here and the things that have been made, how he runs his universe, and just the description here in in Psalm 8 is, is amazing. I think it's important to keep in mind that name in Hebrew represents character, that children were often named with a sentence in Hebrew. It might be a single word, but it's a word that contains all the parts of the sentence. And that the character of the child is, to some sense, predicted by the name that they are given. So character and name are closely related. So what is being praised here is not just the name of God, but the character that name represents. Larry. Nowhere in any of these, or maybe I should state it differently, I didn't find in any of these an indication that what matters is my relationship with the God, the God being that they're discussing. It's all him and what he's either going to do to me, done to me, or is expecting of me. I would simply point out that those who create categories like this were not attempting to address that which you were looking for in here. They were simply saying, Various people have different ways of viewing God, and can we categorize them to some degree? And many of these philosophers were Christians, and many of them in the early years when Christianity was defining itself. And so benevolent theism was seen as an overriding characteristic of the picture of God that the early church found in Scripture. So while while these categories are philosophical in the sense that they're asking a philosophical question and seeking answers to it, the early church saw the biblical answer as being benevolent theism. So I guess you could define benevolent theism by whatever you see the Bible saying about God, because that was what I think the early Christian philosophers intended. Anyway, appreciate the back and forth because that helps us clarify. I I appreciate you clarifying that. All right. So Psalm 8 talks about God, but it also talks about humanity. And it's fascinating here, if you take a look, that in verses 3 and 4, it really zeroes in on the limitations of humanity. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? 
right? It's seeing humanity as so insignificant that one even begins to wonder whether God could conceivably care at all about human beings. But then look at the shift in verses five and six. Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. So human beings are portrayed as extremely insignificant in verses three and four and extremely important in verses five and six. And how would you put those two concepts together? Scripture often speaks in terms of tensions. You know, God is great and God is good. A serious tension between those two and in the way that they have been worked out in Christian tradition. So here you have tension. Human beings are insignificant and extremely important. And both of those are true. Neil? Insignificant as far as creation and making, but significant in maintaining. Okay. Rita? I think perhaps that the psalmist is in absolute awe of God and in awe of the responsibility that God has entrusted to him. Um, it's almost too big for him to comprehend, but recognizes that that's what's happened. And so how important it is for him to do the work that God has asked him to do. So the insignificance of humanity is in the context of comparison with God. And when you look at the greatness of God, just like the psalmist said, human beings seem very significant. Yet, as Gary pointed out, this is a God who in his greatness also is tremendously giving, self-sacrificing, and giving to humanity an opportunity to rule this world. Now, you're probably familiar with my little theory based on Hebrews 2 that God intended from the beginning that human beings would be made more like him than any other creature and would therefore assist in the governing of the universe. And that plan was disrupted by sin, but God intends to restore it later on, even greater than before. Iris? I think these first verses match sort of what the naturalist researcher sees when they direct the telescope to the universe and see the vast differences. And the logical consequence out of this empiricist approach to seeing the universe is to say, we are just a dust, just nothing, really. We really feel so insignificant. And I think the tension to the intentionality of God making man in his own image gives purpose and meaning and dignity to our existence, and that the naturalist researcher will not see by just observing the universe and nature. Just imagine that if a speck of dust gets on the telescope lens, it can blot out 50 galaxies. <laughs> That's the universe is, that a speck of dust can shadow that amount of stars and, and presumably planets and people, creatures of various types. Julie? Doesn't verse 2 refer to the same tension? Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. And in fact, out of these babes and infants, he's even silencing the avenger and the enemy. So it's amazing that this power of God is so great that the worst enemy can be silenced by these simple beings that God has put here. I think that's a sign of the big plan of the whole universe. 
mm, that that child has a potential that is almost infinite in possibility. Yeah. Bobby Joe? Is it possible that this juxtaposed position is an invitation to humanity to guard against overreaching in the outworking of the duties that God has given him? We see that we're very insignificant, and yet God has raised us to a position of rulership, and that should check our way of dealing with other humans and the creatures that God has given us to safeguard and care for, and the planet at large. Very good. Well, let's move on to number four, and it encourages us to read Psalm 100. So let's read this in parts as we did last time, and go to verses one and two out of Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. All right, so here you see that the psalmist here is directing attention away from humanity, pointing it to God, you know, shout joyfully to the Lord, serve the Lord, come before the Lord with joyful singing. So the whole focus is upon God. It's directed away from ourselves. And that's, I think, where you get the true sense of humanity is that when you are looking at God, you understand both your insignificance and your great potential. And both of those, if you're not focused on God, you may overrate yourself and underrate God's role in everything. Verses three and four. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. All right. It's interesting here. It says that the Lord is God. He made us and not we ourselves. That's interesting. It is God who made us and not we ourselves. I think sometimes maybe human beings act as if we made ourselves. But here it suggests, no, we didn't. And of course, you remember one of the things that the psalmist is confronting day to day is idolatry. And idolatry, to some degree, we make our gods. Now, the pagans knew that the pieces of wood that they made were not that significant, but they did believe that somehow the spirits of the gods would enter into those pieces of wood if they went through the proper ceremonies, etc. So that the pagans didn't think that the idols were gods, but they felt that they could be the place where the gods would visit and participate with them. So when it says, He made us, and not we ourselves, it's undermining some of these nature gods, the appeasement gods that were so common in those days. And then verse five. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. All right. So you see the greatness of God again in the psalm, but also the goodness of God. The Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting his faithfulness to all generations. So here you see this tension, and it's not what human beings naturally come up with. The Christian view of God is somewhat unique within the larger religious perspective, this tension between great and good. Uh, just like in the Trinity, the tension between three and one, there's all these tensions, and these tensions make sense 
because God is beyond our ability to describe. As one person put it, if you pour God into a finite cup, God will shatter the cup. You know, a cup cannot hold an infinite God. And so all of our categories get blown apart in trying to truly describe what God is like. So what Christians did in the early centuries was affirm the two tensioned truths about God and didn't try to resolve them too much. Yes, God is one, absolutely, and God is also three. God is great, absolutely great, but God is also good. And these are intention with each other. Obviously, the great and the good is intention because the world is so bad. So holding out that God is great and good raises the question of, if that is true, why are things so bad in the universe? So looking at the question in part four, what are the implications of the idea that God is both great and good? And how would you reconcile the tension between those? If God is so great, then he should be able to micromanage everything that happens. And if God is so good, there shouldn't be any evil. So that's the challenge that people face. How do you manage that tension? How do you reconcile it with a world that's not good? All right, Lou? Could it be because he has given us free choice? And so that can go many different directions for people in our world. And we can choose him every day, or we can just think we're skating along fine without him. And that's very dangerous. So you're saying he has given us free will. Um, yes. I think another way one could describe that is that God can limit himself. If God is infinite in power and infinitely good, then he should be able to control everything so that nothing goes wrong. So one of the best answers to that tension is to say that God does have the capacity to limit himself. And he does that for the sake of our freedom for creatures to be free. It's really self-sacrificial on God's part, isn't it? Because God in his greatness could have everything turn out just the way he wants. But instead, he loves enough to give freedom and to limit his control over the universe. God has the power, but chooses to limit his control. So as the early church was wrestling with it, they were facing these pagan gods, as we've mentioned before. And the pagan gods were just like us, but much more powerful. So pagan gods had tempers, they would often do evil things, etc. But they were extremely powerful, and therefore were to be feared and to be served without question. But the Christians looked at that, you know, this idea of gods behind every tree, nature gods and all of that, and they concluded the biblical God is greater than that. He's greater than these pagan gods. And then they noticed that the pagan gods were capricious, arbitrary, and sometimes even evil. And what did they conclude? God is better than that. He's greater than the pagan gods. He's better than the pagan gods. He is truly great and truly good. Both of those are true. Both of those are to be affirmed side by side. So that's how the church wrestling with it in those early councils came to understand that God is both great and good. And of course, Seventh-day Adventists have never felt themselves bound to church tradition. 
but where the church got it right, the Adventist church reserved the right to say, yeah, we agree with that, even along with the wider church. And so when you look at the fundamental beliefs about God in the Adventist fundamental beliefs, they track pretty much with what the wider church has to say about God. He is great and he is good. So the Psalms, they're expressions of worship, they're expressions of feelings and thoughts, etc., often have some pretty profound theology buried in those few simple words. With that in mind, let's go to Psalm 75 and see what that tells us. Psalm 75, why don't we go through it piece by piece? Let's start with verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. Your name is near. People tell of your wondrous deeds. All right, so here the psalmist starts out, and this is one of those Asaph psalms, one of the choir directors in the temple of Solomon, or perhaps earlier of the tabernacle of David. So we start with thankfulness for what God has done. And what has God done? Verse 2. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. All right. So the psalmist is praising God for judging with equity. And what does this equity mean? God judges with equity. In today's world, this word often means equality of outcomes. You know, equality of opportunity is everybody gets the same chance. Equality of outcome means everybody has the same result. There's a subtle difference between those. So it's interesting that the psalmist uses this term equity. Does God ever assure equality of outcome? All right, Nancy? In our Good News translation, it says fairness. God judges uh-huh. fairness. Okay. Rita? My New International says it is I who judge uprightly. I think what it's meaning is that he's not going to be influenced or biased by anything in any way, that he's going to consider everything, as Nancy said, fairly. That's what being equitable is, is being fair to everybody, treating everybody as equal. It's not necessarily equal outcome. Equality of opportunity doesn't necessarily mean equality of outcome. So it's interesting that words can change meaning. And you can read a King James Bible, for example, and 400 years later, the word means the opposite. You know, he that now letteth will let, in modern day English, is the one who permits. But originally, it meant that this is one who prevents, you know, like a let ball in tennis is one where the net prevented the ball from going over the net. So that's, you know, a reflection of that old English. So words can change meaning. Equity can mean a number of things. So that's where looking at a variety of translations can be helpful. To me, that means that God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't treat you with a different set of standards than he does me for the same thing, kind of like all things being equal. So you don't have any advantage over me in God's eyes. All right. Neil? I was going to say that the word fairly opens up another can of worms, but my net translation says that God judges fairly. He Mm -hmm. judges each based on its own needs and its own requirements and the options. Is there ever a time when God ensures equality of outcome in Scripture? You don't have to answer that, Julie, because you put your hand up first, but go ahead and, and share what you had in mind. Well, I'm just looking at the root of the word here. 
a little bit of language. Meshir, I guess is the word, and it comes from yasher, which has to do with being straight or level or smooth. So if you look at it from a physical point of view, if you're building, it's something that's, you have a level that kind of makes things a certain straight way. It could be, we're thinking of equity as in comparing one person to another. And this may be comparing everything to some standard that God knows is right and just. And instead of comparing one person with another. Very good. So if, if a way is leveled out, then no part of the road that you're driving on is better than the other. It's all smooth and, and everything moves nicely. So that's sort of a root behind this uh, equity word. But again, I'll ask the question, is there ever a point where God assures a quality of outcome? And I think of Matthew 20. Remember, there was a farmer who needed help in the field. And at six in the morning, he goes out into the marketplace, finds a bunch of guys standing around, says, hey, why don't you come work for me today and I will give you what is fair? And they say, okay, we'll come. And then at nine in the morning, he realizes the job is too big and he goes back and finds some more people hanging around the marketplace says, hey, come work in my field and I'll give you what's appropriate. And then at noon, he goes back and finds some more and brings them in. And then at five o'clock in the afternoon, he goes back and there's still people hanging around the marketplace. And so he brings them in as well. And he says, I'll give you what is fair. And at the end of the day, they line up to receive their pay. And the first one, he gives a full day's wage. Now, everybody in line behind him is thinking, what? Wow. If he got that for one hour, imagine what I'm going to get. And then the three o'clock people and the noon people and the nine in the morning people and the six in the morning, they all got the same thing. What do you think was going on there? All right. I think that it shows that God isn't so concerned about when in a person's life they come to him and open up and are willing to be taught and willing to have a relationship with him, just that they do. Okay. Yeah. Very good. So doesn't matter when people came, they got the same result. Yeah. Lou? It makes me think of the thief on the cross that God is there to forgive whenever anybody turns to him, no matter what time of their life or at the last moment. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't the five o'clock guy. He was the 557, wasn't he? Yes. yes. <laughs> All right, Daniel. The story follows Matthew 19. And in Matthew 19, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And Jesus, instead of saying, oh, wow, with all these riches, I will put you on the board to mm -hmm. serve. As an advisor, he says to him, go and sell everything and then come and follow me. And Matthew says that he left sad because he was not willing to do this. And Peter responds, now we have managed what he, the rich young lure, couldn't. What we will get in return. And Jesus tells this parable saying, the one who comes five minutes before the close of probation gets the same thing as you, Peter, do, and the disciples, you will all be in heaven. So the equality of outcome is assured. Mm -hmm. So the issue is salvation, and that in terms of whether or not you get there, it has nothing to do with you. It is a gift of God. It is God's grace, and it only needs to be received. But in a way, I set a little bit of a trap, because in Matthew 25, you have the opposite. In Matthew 25, you have the parable of the talents. And one person comes out with 10, and another comes out with four, and one comes out with nothing. And it depends on their performance. And so the interesting thing is that while salvation as such is an equality of outcome, 
what you do here will make a difference there. And in Corinthians, Paul talks about some people, you know, build their house on a rock and other people build it on hay or stubble. And when fire comes, the hay or stubble house just burns up. And then he says that the outcome will be affected by how you built in this life, even though you are saved. So that was a fascinating little piece that while salvation is equality of outcome, in eternity, it won't be equality of outcome either that those who are saved will bring with them some of what they have done before and the consequence of those. What we do now does matter then. It will make a difference then. And that's very exciting, meaning that everything we do now, every bit of education we get, every effort we make in behalf of others will not be forgotten, but it will actually have a consequence in eternity. It reminds me of Jan Robertson, who was a dear friend and mentor back when I was a teenager. Some of you may know him as a director of the Redland Symphony not that long ago. And he used to like to tell the stories as people come up to me and say, I can't wait to get to heaven so I can play the piano like you, Jan. And Robertson would reply, no, you're not. You're not going to do it. And I said, what do you mean? It says, when we get there, I'll be at least 15 years ahead of you, and I don't intend you to ever catch up. In other words, he understood that the effort he had put into making beautiful music on this earth would be used in eternity. So every effort we make for good, everything we seek to do for the kingdom of God will not be lost. It isn't just the puddle that disappears into the ocean, but it will actually make an eternal difference. So that's exciting. Matthew has a tension here. There's equality of outcome, and there isn't, both in the same book. And I think almost any time if it would make a categorical statement about God or about us, there's a balancing thing somewhere that needs to be said and keep us searching for the full balance. All right, well, let's go back to Rita. The parable of the talents surely has as much to do with what the servants thought about their master. The outcome, it was dependent on what they believed about their master and not what they brought back to their master. Mm -hmm. Because the two who invested, they brought back 100% of what they'd be given in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's about what, what they thought, what picture of their master they had. They were acting on their picture of their master. Mm -hmm. Good observation. At the same time, there is a difference, isn't there? That the one who made 10 talents would be put over to 10 cities, I think. In other words, there is some equation between the effort and the outcome in that context as well. But you make an excellent point about the core reality that in all of Jesus' parables, whether they trusted the master to return was a significant piece of it. Larry? There is a body of evidence that indicates that our capacity to learn, not to think and to remember, but to learn is unlimited. And if we're pausing for a minute to think about what you've stated about what happens in heaven and the idea of the ability to continue to learn and to progress and become who we are. So from this idea of this is how we do things and who we are and what happens to us in heaven, I think is so much more encompassing and enlightening and encouraging 
then the prevalent we're going to play harps and sing hallelujah the whole time. So I really do appreciate you opening that line of discussion. Thank you. Well, and if God has created human beings more like him than any other creature, and if God's purpose was to assist in the ruling of the universe, then God has huge plans for human beings. And the troubles we have in this life our tuition in God's university. And that's one way we can maybe have a better attitude towards some of the setbacks in this life, because none of that will be wasted, that God will take everything that happened to us, everything that we responded to, et cetera, and make the most of it that can possibly be made. Lou, go ahead. I had an experience. I have a friend from way back in Academy days, and her father was a physician, and he was cruel, very, very, very cruel in the home. And long story short, she became an atheist and a homosexual and chose a whole different path. Well, I've maintained a relationship with her off and on through the years by email and whatnot. And we were having a conversation about a month ago, and I told her something that I really believe, and I don't know if I heard it from somebody, maybe it was what you or Daniel, I don't know. But I heard one time that anybody and everybody who would be happy for eternity in heaven will be there. And she says, Lou, do you really believe that? And I said, I sure do, girl. Anyway, it seemed to really mean the world to her because she's a very, very intelligent, curious person. And I can just see her studying the universe for eternity and being thrilled. It's not this playing harps and sitting on clouds. It's scientific, beautiful, wonderful, beyond our comprehension. It seemed to really give her a lot of courage. So anyway, that was an experience I had recently about heaven. Well, we know that because of sin, human beings are deeply flawed. And some of those deep flaws include physical handicaps, mental handicaps, emotional handicaps, spiritual handicaps. And God understands. God knows the whole. And the challenges that they faced here will be gone. And we can become the people that God always intended us to be. That, I think, is awesome to contemplate. Terry's been patiently waiting because we're working through Psalm 75 here. But I think the break was worth it. So let's go on to verse three. When the earth totters with all its inhabitants, it is I who keep its pillars steady. Mm. So here he's saying that it is God that restrains the world's collapse. I think human beings can have a lot to do with wrecking this world, but there are limits, I think. And God is the one who sustains and restrains all the way through. Verses four and five. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with insolent neck. All right. So God here is warning against boasting. In comparison with God, we have relatively little impact on what the world is like or the universe will be like. Yet at the same time, it's not insignificant, but it's not worthy of boasting for sure. Verses six to seven. 
For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. So we heard earlier about the idea of this equity being God evening things out, God smoothing things out. And here this concept of judgment, God putting down the bumps and filling in the holes to make that nice smooth road. Uh, Number eight. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. He will pour a draft from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Alcohol has always been sort of a metaphor for unreality. A person who indulges in alcohol isn't living in reality as everyone else experiences it. And so recognizing that the true reality is God and faithfulness to God. But there are those who respond to God as if they'd had a cup full of strong drink. Verses 9 and 10. But I will rejoice forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. God here is judging the oppressors, lifting up the oppressed, the righteous, etc. And just in passing, notice that in the psalm, you have one of the sources for the three branches of government in the United States. You have the legislative, God is the lawgiver. You have the executive, God is the rule maker, the king. And you have the judicial, God is the judge. So the lawmaker, the law applier, and the judge, these inspired the pioneers of the American government to create a three-part government, which has become more and more, I think, a model for many, many other countries as well. Well, coming back to the question at the end of number six, the Psalms invite people to rejoice in anticipation of God's judgments. And the question to ponder, in what way is the judgment good news? How would you respond? In what way is the judgment good news? Neil. Vindication. And if you elaborate. Too many people look at judgment as something that's negative, but the judgment in this case is a vindication of God and God's methods and us for following his methods. Mm -hmm. All right. Someone once said that Jews generally have never seen the judgment as a negative because they think of the judgment of God. They think, well, we're going to sue and win damages. You know, this is a good thing. (laughs) All right. Ashley Fuller. I guess in one way, we finally get the clarity, I think, and certainty that I think is part of what's core to being human. So just having answers finally and knowing, I think, is one thing that we gain from like the judgment. So you are seeing the judgment then as revelation, in a sense, that it reveals the truth about God, reveals the truth about ourselves, etc. Isn't that what investigation is all about? People are trying to determine what actually happened here. How can we determine the actual events, what takes place? Say somebody dies because of someone else's intervention, etc. Was that a murder or a failed attempt at rescue? You know, that can be a, a challenging decision to make. And so the whole point of investigation is to reveal the truth about what actually occurred. So I think you're on to a very important point there about judgment that we can rejoice in knowing the truth. Also, we can rejoice that the oppressors have been put in their place and that those who have been disadvantaged have it all made up to them. Yeah. 
the reader. I'm wondering here, because I think when we've got to verses six and seven, this is the psalmist speaking and not saying what God says, judging by where the inverted commas, the speech marks are in my new international version. And six is saying no one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. Is this saying that it is God that we can't, we can't know where a man stands in relation to God. And we may think that somebody stands nowhere in relation to God, but God shows that he does and vice versa. So it's not levelling things, but it's showing where we are wrong in our judgments of others. Yeah, it's a fearful thing to be a judge or to be on a jury because we have such limits in knowing exactly what in fact occurred. And you're making a judgment often based on inference and on testimony from various people. But God and his judgment has complete clarity. And that can be tremendously freeing to leave the judgment in God's hands. Iris. I wonder if we can reconnect with what we said at the onset. God is infinitely powerful and also infinitely good. And right now, there is a self-limitation on God's part in granting human freedom, which has been abused. But after the judgment, that time of rebellion and abuse of power will be over. It will mean that we will willingly submit to God's loving power and authority. We will worship him. We will say, you alone deserve to be on your throne. And at that point, there is no disconnect or no negative tension anymore between his power and his goodness, because his goodness will reign the universe. And all the sad part, all the broken part, all the things that cause us grief will no longer be. And that's the hopeful news. Yes, indeed. All right, Livius? I don't remember the story. Maybe you could help me out, but... Didn't David get in trouble? And God gave him like two or three options to choose from, a punishment. And David chose to have God decide or something like that because he knew that God was merciful. I don't remember exactly what the different punishments were. And with respect to this judgment, from last quarter studying the three angels' messages, I saw Psalm 51 like I never have before with respect to this idea of judgment. And you see in Psalm 51 that David actually runs to judgment. There are words like wash me, purge me, cleanse me, search me. So David is actually wanting God to judge him and to maybe prescribe some kind of remedy here because God will be judged by the prescription maybe that he has to follow or something. But anyway, I just saw the judgment as just a positive thing that we are to run to, to have our characters restored. Psalm 51 is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so judgment can be a frightening term, just like God's rulership can be a frightening term, depending on the picture of God that you have. But the scriptural picture of God is one of clarity. Greatness, yes, but also kindness, goodness, mercy, and gives us the confidence to go through the challenges of life without giving up. Aaron? So it seems that there's different types of judgments in the Bible, and we have 
at least it seems this way, God taking disciplinary action for the good and protection and correction of Israel, for example. Sometimes that's allowing Babylon to come take them away. And so whether God's allowing something or actively causing something to happen, we see that disciplinary action for good of his children. And so that's one kind of judgment. I think when we talk about judgment now, we're mainly thinking of in the end, are we saved or are we lost? That kind of thing. And in Revelation, Jesus says, let him who is righteous be righteous still and let him who is wicked be wicked still. And it's like God's revealing what we've chosen and we see the justice in that if we're saved. And for the lost, they see the justice in it. As much as they don't like the end that they've come to, they see that it is just and that they would not be happy. I think they come to that place of realizing that they would not be happy in the universe. And so from God's perspective, how would a parent feel if their child died thinking their parent was killing them rather than realizing they died because of something they chose that their parent tried to prevent them from doing? So Mm -hmm. I think that that is a critical understanding that people need in order to judge God correctly. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that very much, Sharon. Thank you. Let's go to what I'll make the concluding part of our study this time. That's in number seven, where it says, how can people have peace with God and assurance of salvation at the time of judgment? I'd have to be honest and say that as a teenager, probably the one thing that I was most afraid of was the judgment, the idea that God's all-seeing eye knew everything that I'd done, everything that I'd thought, everything I'd felt, everything I could have messed up, you know, that all of that was piled up against me. And that if somehow maybe Jesus twisted God's arm just right, I had an outside chance. You know, and I I remember statements, uh, somebody said, not one in 20 will make it. And so that was not a happy time in many ways. The idea to have peace in the face of a judgment was not something that came easily for me earlier on. So suggests here that we take a look at a couple of texts. One of these is Psalm 94 and verse 14. Psalm 94, 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. So here God makes a statement. My people may abandon me, but I will not abandon them. I will not forsake my people. I will not abandon my disobedient children. And, you know, one of the most helpful things I've ever heard in that is something that Graham Maxwell once said, where he said that when a child misbehaves, do they get kicked out of the family? You know, no, at least most parents, decent parents, would not call up the in-laws and say, you know, well, we had three children, but now we have two. One of them's totally gone. All right. That isn't the way healthy parents work. And God is certainly healthier than healthy parents on this earth. And that analogy suggests that while his people disobey, his people are messed up, you know, God still keeps them as part of his family. You can leave the family and God won't stop you. And I remember once when I was a young pastor in New York that a girl showed up at the church and I knew her parents very well. And she said, I've run away from home because I don't want my parents to know where I am, but I would like them to know that I'm safe. And we took her home that night. Very, very risky thing. But call the parents and say, I know where she is. She's safe with us and so on. And we all do our best to 
bring you back together here soon. Later that evening, she said, I'd like to go out for a walk and didn't come back. Next day, we tracked her down and she was deeply distressed and repentant and everything. Through tears, I said, are you ready to go home now? And she nodded her head. We took her home 11 o'clock at night to her parents and brought it all together. But those parents were not going to give her up. And we were not willing to give her up. But she did have the ability to distance herself, not only from the parents, but also from those who had been delegated to try to keep watch over her while she tried to sort out everything that was going on. So God does not give up on his people. And I think that's the whole message of the Old Testament. A lot of confusing stories in there if you take them one at a time. When you look at the big picture, God, as a God of judgment, is not seeking to eliminate as many as he can. He's seeking to include as many as he possibly can. And let's close with a text that's often been scary for people, but has a surprising twist. That's Daniel 7, the judgment of Daniel 7, chapter 7 and verse 22 has a surprising little preposition that kind of changes the tone quite a bit. Until the ancient one came, then judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High, and the time arrived when the holy ones gained possession of the kingdom. All right, so it talks about the judgment, the great final judgment, and my translation is the New American Standard that I have here in my office, and it says judgment was passed in favor of the saints. So when you come into judgment and you look up at the judge, you discover the judge is your best friend. Is that a time to start worrying? Or is that a time to realize there's nothing that will cause this person to eliminate me unless I make it impossible? And I'm sure we're all quite capable of doing that. But the whole point is judgment is not for the purpose of condemning people. Judgment is not for eliminating as many as possible. Judgment is a way that God clarifies the issues to the universe in such a way that as many as possible will be included. So God's reign is not scary. God's reign is not there to make us miserable or to keep us out of his kingdom. God rules for the benefit of those who are ruled. It's truly the government we always wanted but never got. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for these psalms and for the engagement we could have with the scriptures 